Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Gall, the co-founder and CTO at Augury. And we discuss how Augury's machine health AI is able to prevent 80% of unexpected downtime. How COVID has accelerated years of innovation down to a matter of months and how to make space for different ways of thinking to get the best ideas possible out of your team. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Well, let's get into it. Take me back. How did you first get into technology? Um, take you back. Well, it's going to take a while, but let's, uh, let's maybe start. I think I've been interested in how things work since I remember myself. It was a VCR back in the day with my dad <laughs> trying to figure out what cables go into where, and then trying to figure out other things and a lot of things that my parents plays that are already broken because I tried to understand how they work and could never assemble them back. <laughs> I was always into sports as well. And even there, I found some techie sports. I was in fencing for many years and there was a lot of technology that's going into that. And there's a lot of uh, tech stuff. What kind that's of going tech on. is in fencing? Uh, who touched who? How hard did you touch your opponent? What got there first? There's a lot of uh, microseconds uh, type of uh, things that only computers can detect. The referee can never see what exactly happened. So it relies a lot, a lot on technology. If you ever watched fencing, it's amazing to play the sports. It's a bit hard to watch because it's so fast. You don't watch the rerun. You usually don't understand what exactly happened there. Uh, but that was a part of my life. Then I was an, a naval officer for a few years in the Israeli military. And then when I thought of what I want to do next or what I want to do when I grow up and growing up has a lot of different meanings. Uh, but for me, it was uh, trying to understand how to build things that matter and trying to take a lot of things that I've done before and try to connect them together and started working uh, more formally in tech after a few years at the Technion in Israel, which is a software engineering school in my case. Oh, cool. So what was your first major job in tech? Uh, I worked in a digital cameras company. We're manufacturing uh, microprocessors for digital cameras. Uh, everything that does JPEG at first ended up being a lot of uh, signal processing for how do we produce cameras. So a bit before iPhones came out and cameras on phones became really good, digital cameras was a, were a big thing. And uh, I worked on algorithms to identify smiles, to identify the waves that takes kind of the before selfie type of pictures where you put the camera, you go out, someone waves and it uh, takes the picture. Oh, nice. So a lot of uh, signal processing and image processing. There I started as an intern, a bit like you shared earlier. I started it as an intern. I said, hey, I like signal processing. It's a lot of software. It's very, very down close to the hardware and how things work. So I get to understand how to build things and started there. It was a lot of fun. The company was great as well. So you were working on the like image processing algorithms on the software side or the actual processor chips on the hardware or both? It, it was a bit of both. It was a bit of the same. Uh, so it was a microprocessor, a dedicated processor that was designed for things that cameras do. 
specifically. So with you, you had to compress the JPEG. So you had to do a lot of signal processing as well as software development. So I was on the software development side. There was an algorithms group. Today, you don't do that anymore, right? But there was an algorithms group. You were given a spec, the software of how it should work or how the simulation works. And then you implement that to the best of the capabilities of the hardware and software that you have in place. Depends on the type of camera that you're running it. It was a lot of fun and a lot of hard work and uh, beats and bytes, literally. That's cool. Yeah, I I had never really thought about how much processing a digital camera actually does because I, I think of it as just like a camera. Until this past year, I've done a lot of video work with um, yeah. some mirrorless uh, digital cameras, and mm -hmm. they overheat a lot. And it's like an it's an issue, <laughs> and yeah. um, I I hadn't even thought about that as a problem until it started happening to me, and I was like, wow, these are just little computers with a lens. Like, of course they can overheat. <laughs> yeah, it overheats, and in the past, I know ten years ago, and maybe fifteen years ago, a, a camera would overheat because it was trying to have a sports mode, right, to take thirty pictures. Uh, in yeah. a row and then do all the compute and then store them had a lot of uh, heavy compute it had to take into place and if you didn't calculate it properly it would overheat you almost can't touch it if it didn't work so the hardware and software connectivity in cameras had to work from very early on to be functioning at the best of the capabilities because there's so much condensed in that piece of hardware of course Today, it's just one of those things a camera does on your phone, but it's uh, a lot of the way we even look at phones today is kind of a camera with a communication device more than the phone capabilities, right? So it kind of shifted to new industries and uh, transformed right. in really cool ways. Yeah, it's like, I, I swear that's the thing they hype up the most on every new phone release is the mm -hmm. camera. It's, yeah. it's not about the phone. <laughs> it's not about the phone. It was actually a really, really cool example of looking at Innovator's Dilemma, where if you were from the camera industry, you would look at cameras and phones like, oh, they don't have three CCDs. They don't have this. They don't have that. That's kind of a different technology. And every six months or the pace of generations of phones, it became every three days, right? Depends on how fast you're going there. They became a bit better, a bit better, a bit better, way better than regular cameras, not seeing anyone else in that race, right? But you could have seen them kind of starting from the bottom, being a very basic camera to being the standard of what cameras are today. Right? Even expensive or very high-end cameras today, they consume some technologies from that trend uh, that happens with mobile phones and then implement it back to the cameras. Uh, ecosystem yeah well all right so we're not we're not here to talk about cameras for an hour uh as yeah. much as as much fun <laughs> as that would be um but so right now you're working on a company called augury right yeah true so how did you how did you you're the founder how did you start that yeah so i was working in this uh, medical device company and signal processing there a lot of hardware and software connectivity uh there as well and Sarah and I have known each other for ages at that time, right? We've been talking about startup for five years before we started Augury and kind of every class we took at the university, we were talking about startups, went to meetups, compared books, compared notes, even decided on their first job based on what is the right path to 
start a company. We didn't get to the same conclusions, but always had that in mind. Then somewhere between this medical device company I was working on where you start seeing problems arise at software, but it's actually not a software problem. It's a hardware problem and, and I don't know, something in a pump doesn't work, but you don't know that. So you end up triggering a heat alert or something kind of very late in the process. And SAR was working at the time at Intel in the chip design uh, area of the microprocessors in Intel, but he has background in physics and electrical engineering and was very interested in voice and sound in general and machine learning and felt there is a lot of missing opportunities between everything that the world learned about image processing and speech recognition, but sound as itself wasn't as explored at the time. And he was looking at a lot of applications there somewhere, something clicked, he came out with the notion that we're ready and we can start something. We started speaking about that and figuring it out. And then a few months later, we were already, we already quit everything else and started working on Augury, which became a machine house for a lot of different applications that we never dreamed about. That's really cool. So can you give me the overview of what Augury focuses on today? Yeah, sure. Uh, so for the last 10 years, we were building a company that helps people rely on the machines that matter. Now, what machines matter to them and how they're going to do that, that may vary, but we provide superior insights into the health and performance of machines that helps people make products, support uh, life in general, provide some services around us, right? So we work with industrial enterprises that are in the manufacturing space and help them improve the health of their machines that they use currently in specific markets to avoid unplanned downtime and improve their maintenance. Based on the sound of the machine, we can tell what it's doing, how is it doing, when is it going to break uh, with a few months of alert in most cases, and then people repair them and uh, get less surprises. It eliminates almost 80% of the surprises in a manufacturing line today. That's really interesting. So you use the sound that the machine makes to, to evaluate the health of the machine at any given time? Yeah, so you can think about it if you drive your car, maybe not an electrical vehicle, but uh, one with a motor and a, <laughs> and a drive. If you have a squeaking belt, you would know it's a squeaking belt. It doesn't matter if it's a Toyota or a Mercedes, you, a squeaking belt sounds like a squeaking belt. So you, we use those patterns to identify the main malfunctions that may occur. We look at it in a continuous manner. So we have sensors that connect to the cloud and listen to the sound, the vibration, today a bit more signals that the machine produces. And then look at the trends of what's happening there. And therefore we can tell what's wrong, what, how much time does it have and when is it going to be a catastrophic failure? Okay, so when, when someone comes to you, you kind of go into their factory and put some sensors on their machines and you can kind of, I guess, in a sense, turn any device into an IoT device that's capable of reporting its current health and whether and whether or not it's in need of maintenance. Right. Is, so, that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. So you can look at a production line that is comprised out of hundreds of different units, right? If you're trying to make, I don't know, to 
beer, right? So you have beer, it arrives somehow, then you have bottles, then you have a cork, then you have the, I know, the plate that it has, then it goes into a box, right? So it has a few components, but it's hundreds of machines in the process and each and every one of them can fail. Some of them, let's say 30, 40% of the machines are actually critical. If one of them is not working, the entire line is not functioning, right? And it can be in manufacturing beers, it can be in manufacturing medicine, it can be in when you try to make toilet paper or diapers or toothpaste, right? It's kind of, all of these are reliant on a lot of things that to work simultaneously in order to be manufactured in the fashion that we're trying to make products and get them to shelves. And then what Avri does is, yes, we put sensors in each and every one of those devices and try to alert and give the team that's working on keeping their health insights to what's going to go wrong, how are they going to fix it, and what's the urgency? Do you need to stop everything now and repair it? Or can you wait for next Monday when you have two hours of shutdown and you can easily replace different things that need replacement? So how do you go from all the raw data from the sensors to insights on the health of the machines? I imagine with so many different machines, like within manufacturing, the machines get very niche and and different from each other from plant to plant when they're creating, when they're making different things. So do you have some like AI running that is able to learn the sounds of the different machines and vibrations that are necessary to convert that data into insights? Yeah. So Aubrey in the sense of our data science and AI is a very hybrid company. We use mathematical models and very modern AI and networks that we can dive into later if we're going to go really geeky and techy, which is phenomenal and interesting. And on the other end, we use a lot of physics. We bring people that are subject domain experts in machinery that have been around for years around those machines coming from predictive maintenance and have seen patterns of those machines and remarry them together. So we try to marry the physical elements and physical understanding of what happens to a machine. What does that sound represent? In friction, what does it represent in things that happen to a bearing and kind of real understanding of machinery? Tie that with AI and with uh, networks that we're using in order to understand what is the rate that this malfunction is happening. So getting a prototype in our market is relatively easy. You connect a machine to a vibration sensor, you look at the raw data. If it's kind of hallmark malfunction, you will see that right away. How to get to the nuances where you have a very quiet system that alerts you when you actually need to do something. That's where our core expertise comes into place. And that's kind of reliant. Not only is it really the problem, but is it the right time to repair that? Is it the right time to fix it and not overload you with more information that you ever want to consume? So do you also interface with like existing IoT devices? Could you plug something that's already got connectivity into your interface and take data data from that as well? Uh, yes, we can. It's not our go-to solution for in order to get started, but it is something that we do later on in order to gather more insights into the production and manufacturing of the entire operation. For the one machine, type of thing for a bearing that went wrong, we use our own data or we use very specific data that we want to have. If we want to get to insights that are more holistic on the way production is happening and how to improve 
there are also different levels. We're doing that by integrating to different sensors and different things that are already measured, already are in the cloud, and we try to match that. In general, in manufacturing, a lot of the problems in digital transformation initiatives is that it takes a lot of time and requires a lot of contextualization of the data. You get a lot of sensing, but what does that mean? How does that tie into the production? We provide very fast ROI on the program because it doesn't integrate at first with any other system. We have dedicated sensors that we put in, and then we connect them to the cloud, and then we bring them to you and not try to mash all the IT and OT operating technologies of the world into one place, which is very important, but doesn't bring you ROI after a minute. And a lot of our customers have seen a lot of integration projects that have been nice in theory, but very hard to prove that it actually changes behaviors and changes their bottom line. So we're trying a different sense. approach of a holistic, a holistic approach to the product, and then very fast to go to changing the process that the company is running. These are traditional companies, so it's it can be challenging, but we are getting very good at that. That's cool. I, yeah, I didn't think about how big of an advantage that is of using your own sensors and having your system just ready to go with that. And also, as you just mentioned, like the more traditional companies, I imagine having your sensor set up that you're able to bring in and immediately evaluate the health of any machines that that gives you an advantage working with those traditional companies as well that may have a lot more legacy machines in their manufacturing. Yeah, it's really hard to go only on new machines in our market because there are millions and millions and millions of machines out there that people that are pretty reliable. They're pretty yeah. reliable in the sense that they mostly work. Mostly work when you have a car and it's reliable, it's great. You just keep driving it. When you have hundreds of machines per line and then you have hundreds of lines in your company, it becomes a statistics game. How many of them are going to fail today? How many of them are going to fail tomorrow? It becomes kind of big numbers and you can avoid 80% of the surprises. I can't believe that this just happened. Well, tell you what, you have 10,000 machines. It happens to your company every day. Let's just eliminate the level of surprise of the people on the ground and help them understand that as they go through their day-to-day, which is pretty challenging as well. So one thing I always like to ask founders of a company, where did the name come from? Great question. Uh, So Augury is kind of a prophecy in Latin. It exists in English, but less used. Augurs of the Roman Empire were looking at birds and based on their behavior, we're trying to tell you when is the right time to go to war, when is the right time to crop your uh, field and or harvest your fields. And they were looking at things that were not really related to each other and try to provide predictions from those signs. Uh, so that's a bit of what we're trying to do at Augury as well. That's that's really cool. I, I actually had to do like a double chat, double take when I saw um, this on my calendar today because a little while ago we had a company called Origa, which mm-hmm. spells their name pretty similarly. Um, and uh, actually, I do want to ask you though, from mm-hmm. kind of based on on that interview, they're they're a custom software development firm for like outsourcing development and doing team augmentation in software. And their CEO was telling me about how outsourcing used to be 
somewhat taboo, but uh, throughout COVID, that stigma is kind of lifted and more people have been open to outsourcing and that, and that's probably going to stay as like an industry trend overall. And I'm curious, what are some changes that have been brought to your industry by COVID? And do you think those are here to stay? Yeah, so the our industry has definitely gone through digital transformation from being, uh, hey, we just added the chief digital officer and we're trying to figure it out. And there are many pilots and we're trying things out in digital transformation in manufacturing to, hey, this is real, this is happening, this is here to stay, we're doing it during COVID. And it happened for a variety of reasons, uh, but a lot of them was, it's nice in theory, but the transition was hard. The people on the ground, maintenance managers, and uh, sometimes plant managers, depends on who they are and what company that they work, were a bit reluctant and a bit skeptical on the actual effectiveness and credibility of new solutions. They've been around, they know their machines, they know their side, they have good instincts of what's going on there. And they're like, yeah, we'll try it out. Maybe some of us will, but it, it didn't become this trend. Uh, the industry suffered from a real pilot purgatory around a lot of uh, IoT and digital transformation initiatives. During COVID, three things happened, right? The workforce suddenly is not on the plant anymore. Not all the team is there. So if a maintenance manager now is remote, they need a communication device with the team that are there. They can't just walk to the line and give orders and go back. They need something that is within context of the specific line or specific machine to communicate on. And they don't have their own ears and eyes to see that. So it started with, hey, we need more tools. We need to manufacture more. Our industry had to manufacture three, two, three X more in most of our customers during the beginning of COVID with a third of the team on site because of social distancing. And it created the demand for more technology. And then the workforce is uh, changing dramatically. 17% of manufacturing workforce is retiring in those two years, right? Between 2020 and 2021. And it was actually accelerated because the uh, workforce that was a bit on the older side of the map, right? Where retiring early or it was hard, it was more risky for them to come back with COVID. So they got retirement plans to be effective earlier in their career. So it, it got, all right, now we have a new workforce. They don't have those instincts. They're more keen to use new technologies and uh, uh, digital technologies. And actually they need it in order to make quota of what they're trying to manufacture. All of that is there to stay. Right? None of it is going back. In terms of outsourcing, not outsourcing, it's not the right industry, right? Manufacturing is still right, very right. traditional. It is in a way that we're looking at the machines that they have and some of their vendors, which we work with, want to provide it as a service, right? Don't worry about buying a pump, buy pumping as a service. Don't worry about buying a chiller. You need to buy actually cooling. That's what you're trying to achieve. So let me give it to you with the right sensing, with everything attached to it, and we'll provide the service that is attached to those machines, right? It's kind of a leasing for industrial of everything that you need. Who owns the equipment? Who is in charge of repairing that? That can also change uh, over time. 
That's interesting seeing that everything as a service model just penetrating every industry. Like we're mm-hmm. never going to, we're not going to own anything by the end of the century. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. So uh, earlier you mentioned that your time to ROI is really fast. How do you actually measure the ROI? Yeah, so we let a lot of it is done by our customers. They know their what an hour of downtime is really worth for most manufacturing facilities. So if you make X amount of product in an hour and that product wasn't produced, the direct cost is that you're going to have less things that you can ship to the market. Now, with commodities, it means that someone will buy something else. Right, let's assume that you were talking about toilet paper, right? So you need to fill 10 shelves with your toilet paper, and I'm in another company, and I have to fill another 10 shelves. Right? Let's assume that you weren't able to provide those 10 shelves, and they only have my products. If someone comes to that pharmacy, they'll just buy whatever is there. No one's going to wait for another toilet paper, right? It's kind of, yeah, I prefer mine, but I'm not going to go on a hunt to look for it. Probably yeah. same for diapers. It's almost the same for a beer, right? Yes, they didn't have my beer. I'm upset for a minute. Then I'll take another six pack and I'll go and <laughs> whatever to my friends that I promised I'll bring beer to. And and I think that's a, a lot of it, right? They miss on the go-to-market and they miss their targets because they're not manufacturing fast or efficient enough. Other than that, there are a lot of things that get broken and you may, I know, tighten a bolt today or replace an entire motor if you wait for two weeks and it's going to run out, right? And then, so they calculate the ROI on lost production and equipment that was saved earlier. Now, I'm saying it as if it's simple. It takes a lot of calculation and time and complexity to get to those ROI calculations, but most of the time it's they know the formula before we came there and we just add, hey, were you able to identify that earlier? What would have happened if you didn't know it, right? And they need it internally, their internal marketing or their internal campaigns to make sure that these programs are successful includes those success stories as well. So we help promote that internally uh, to help them create that change from within, which we believe a lot of digital transformation is actually about people. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, whoever made the purchase from you is motivated to justify that they made a good purchase to their company. And mm-hmm. so they, they make those calculations and then you get to take advantage of that as like, hey, look how look how good it did. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's the person who's made the purchase. Usually they're worried about adoption. It's like, yeah, we tried these new technologies, the plants didn't want it or the people didn't understand what is it good for, right? So we have to show them first and then enable them to promote that, that the adoption is really easy and it's really high among the people that they work with and they don't have to enforce it, quote unquote, from the corporate, but it actually is a part of uh, what their people want to do, what the teams want to do, right? It's kind of a bottom up, if you want to call it that, from the plants and people want to use it more. And then it's a good sign for the corporate that's actually moving forward because a lot of the software that was bought, bought in latest in the last few years is just sitting there. And we are trying not to be a part of that trend. 
Yeah, absolutely. So do you do you send people to do like on-site training for your software after a purchase is made? Yeah, so we're a high-touch model in general uh, at Augury that's pre-COVID. Today we're high-touch, but most of, the, most of it is done remotely. So we have customer success that is on Zoom 12 hours a day with customers trying to help them figure it out. We have training that happens remotely. We created a new training department that was planned to arrive later, but we are training people to do installations uh, themselves of those sensors and of the IoT devices. And we train people to use the platform and we use a lot of digital technologies to help push the success on the facilities as well as on corporate. When needed, we send people on site, usually for the installations and uh, to get the service up and running. Uh, most of our customers interact with the platform or we have at, at least one or two people on the plant level that are using that every day, multiple hours a day to try to figure out what's happening with their machines and how to improve them. That makes sense. I, I should have worded that differently than um, do you send people out? Because obviously there's a, a lot that can be done just <laughs> over Zoom. But, no, I um, think... It, in this industry, I think the question was right on because in this industry, it wasn't acceptable. They expected people to come and close deals on site and to come to train them on site and to come if there is a problem to speak to them personally. And we had people traveling everywhere. They closed the gates and no one that's not from the plant is allowed in. And then they had to adapt and we were already there. We were actually helping them transition more to move to digital types of communication, asynchronous communication, and trying to make sure that a decision can be made from you and then transmitted to your team later, right? A lot, so a lot of it is something that we help them go through as a part of leading them through the change, the communication and feeling comfortable in a setting like we're in now was a bit of a challenge at first. Uh, today, they feel it's kind of, that's the main thing that's happening. So it became uh, a reality and everyone adapted. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure now that they're used to it, it's from what can be done over Zoom, probably just as good or almost just as good as face-to-face. -face. And they're probably saving money because you're saving a ton of money on travel expenses and you don't have to price it as high. So it's, it's good for everyone, in, in, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's good for everyone. I think there are a few things that still needs to happen in person. I, I'm saying that internally for within our company as well as with our customers and for them as well some things it's very hard to quantify but some things does require people sitting together trying to brainstorm and figure out a hard problem and creating the relationship and creating the transparency level that's needed and the confidence level that's sometimes needed so it takes a minute especially when we're talking about physical products and facilities that now needs to shut down in order to replace a bearing because you said so it's a big decision for a lot of people, um, but most of it, yeah, it, it happens in a different way or uh, remotely, and it, it's actually working. In a lot of cases, it works better, right? Communication's better, it's documented better, it's, it's yeah. So uh, a little while ago on the podcast, we had on this guy named Zane Bond from a company called Keeper Security, and they're like a password management tool that they, they do more than that but that's like their consumer facing model and this guy 
was super smart. And you can tell that he just spends a lot of time thinking about security. And mm-hmm. so when I saw your company coming on and I just kind of had security on my mind from that episode, my first thought was like, all right, this kind of seems like IOT. Every IOT device is like a possible threat for someone to breach and get into and control these machines. But hearing about how you actually go about monitoring the machines with um, by, by listening to them rather than having devices that can actually control them, I feel like you've reduced the, the threat of, of each endpoint a lot just by taking that approach. But um, I guess aside from that, how do you view like cyber threats at the endpoints of, of your machines with uh, having them all connected in, in some way? Yeah. So cybersecurity or cyber threats, as you said, are, are a big topic in our field. And it's a lot, it starts with education, right? Is a device that doesn't control your machine is actually a threat or a system that helps you check that no one is playing with your data on the operational data that does control the machine, right? Because if your controller is messed up, then you have another platform that is impartial and you can see that actually does what you told the controller to do or you would have a discrepancy and then trigger an alert on that IoT. I think we're at the market that even the move to the cloud uh, took time and still takes time, right? We are, have conversations with IT and information system in each and every one of our customers, and that's a big topic. Do they already have a cloud strategy? Are they going to have their own cloud application store or are they going to use public cloud, right? Do they approve to work with Google, Microsoft, or or Amazon, or is that just one cloud that they're approving and all the apps needs to go in there? So there, there were a lot of questions and a lot of fear in manufacturing in general and kind of moving to the cloud. What is it going to do? How many threats are there? Uh, what's riskier and kind of going to the cloud or keeping operation as it used to be? And I think that that's the transitioning that happened through COVID is really fast, right? Things that we thought that are going to take two, three years just Six months later, they already had, a lot of our customers already had everything in place and an understanding of how to do that. And it's a part of the way we assess a segment or a market to go into. Are they ready to go to the cloud? Because it means that they have a lot of things in place, including some kind of a strategy of how they're going to operate or what do they want to achieve and not just an aspiration, right? So having a strategy and not just, hey, we really want to go there is really helpful for us to go in. Yeah. I, so you've mentioned a couple of times about how we're kind of like c- coming out of COVID, people have really accelerated their transformations. It seems like a pretty exciting time to be where you're at, kind of implementing transformations. What is something that you're really excited for, for the future of your company? Yeah. Um, I'll start with the past because you asked and it came up. So I'll share that when COVID hit, we had all of our installations canceled in a day, right? We had a lot of things happening. And then within a month, two things happened. We couldn't install and then we had to figure out or implement a new way of installing our platform. But a lot of business or booking in that case came through the door. So we had to, so a lot of people wanted it, but didn't know how to implement it. So we had a lot of bookings and we had implementations that couldn't go on because we couldn't get 
anyone on site. So we changed basically all the strategy of how to deploy the platform and now it can happen really fast. And I think going from that anxiety state of, hey, these are all things that we wanted to do in the future, but now we need to do it now. It's not a two-year process. We need in three months to be able to do it completely differently than the way we were set up. Today, this is our biggest advantage. We know what to do there and we know how to do it fast. And I think we're excited of being able to grow in three different dimensions at the same time, right? So it's an aggressive growth model where we grow geographically and we're going to be installed in many new countries in the upcoming six months. We're going after new markets and we're going after new types of machines. So even within the same market, going after more machines than what we're installed on today is really exciting for us. So going in those three dimensions at the same time in order to really make this transformation impactful for manufacturing is uh, really exciting. And that sounds like going through that change within your company to get so much quicker sounds like such a daunting task. It it was probably really overall helpful to you guys to have such an insane forcing function, like a pandemic that was just like, all right, you have to do it. And um, yeah, I mean, that it just sounds like you did it right and are coming out stronger than before. I think that a lot of leaders uh, in this area, you could you could tell kind of what background they're coming from. So for some of us, uh, wartime is time to flourish. Yes, you're going to have maybe post-trauma later, but it's very clear what you need to do. Focus is at its extreme. We changed all the communication structure within the company to make everyone extremely focused on the one problem we have to solve and then solve that and move to the next one and then move to the next one. And then it puts you, you can't be in wartime all the time because then innovation is a bit hurt or very hurt, depends on how much stress you add to the system or add to people's minds and hearts. But for a while, all your great ideas or everything you thought of is gonna come true now because you can narrow it down to what is blocking us now from helping our customers? What is blocking us from helping products uh, go out of the door and provide people with what they need today? And that forcing function was really helpful in that. So we we're able to move kind of almost a step function ahead. We we're at the right time, the right place. We had great investors that were backing us up to be able to go through that change. And today we're in a totally different challenge. All right, there is good product market fit and all the cranks are ironed out for that product or most of them, right? There are tons of problems in scaling anyways, but kind of the basic ones are out of the door. And then how to move from one product to a portfolio of products is a very hard one, especially if you go to industrials, enterprises with uh, hardware and IoT devices, right? So how do you move to a, to a few offerings combined or a portfolio of offerings? That's the main challenge we have through the growth now. How to keep that level of focus we had during wartime and the pandemic to how to build for scale. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, so I see we're coming up on the top of the hour. Do you have a hard stop uh, at the end of the hour? I don't. Okay, cool. Because I, I just want to get into a couple leadership questions before we wrap up. Sure. How would you describe the culture at your company? Um, so I would say that we invest a lot in culture uh, at Augury, and it's a very innovating space. I think it's a company that looks really, takes really into heart the way things are being done internally and externally, right? We look into our customers, we understand their process, we understand where they are. So there's a lot of empathy 
to where people are coming from with a lot of drive to change, right? So a lot of uh, ownership and innovation are a part of that. There is a lot of autonomy in Augury. So tons of cross-functional teams across the board and people can get a lot of context. So we share a lot. So there's a lot of transparency. And then in return, we get people's ownership over their own strategy, their own plan, and then the execution in being able to figure it out. As it's a very big, the offering is very wide and it's sometimes complex to understand. So we need people that are experts in their domain that are able to make decisions and run autonomously or else we'll never be able to make it happen. From what I can see, we have also a very nice team. So if you ask for help, people probably give you more help than you asked for. And after an hour, we'll just say stop. (laughs) That's awesome. So uh, has the culture of autonomy kind of been there since the beginning? Or is that something you had to focus on and, and build once you were already going? I think it was a combination. It was uh, We wanted to have autonomy from day one. And we put it as one of our core pillars and one of our main values alongside with people first. Uh, so that empathy and ownership was there from the beginning. So we were working in squads when the company was you know, 12 people. So it started in the structure and in how fast did we implement OKRs to enable people with their own autonomy. I think emotionally, it was a bit of a different story. It was hard for me to let go of some of the things uh, and some of the teams that I, quote unquote, built. Uh, And letting go was probably the hardest lesson I had to learn. You want to give autonomy, you forget that you have to actually give a lot of the things that you were in charge of and make sure that people can actually do a better job than you in in being able to lead them uh, over time. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. The best teams are just made up of people that are better at any given task than you are. Uh, yeah. That's why they're there. Uh, so if you if you could design the perfect leadership training program for the leaders you oversee at your company, what would the most important one to two concepts be? I think the the first one would be listening. I think that for me, leaders uh, that can lead from behind can enable teams to flourish. And for that, you need to be a good listener and actually understand what people meant and bring one more question to the table or ask a bit deeper. You usually learn way more than trying to assume and just provide an answer. I think the second one is inclusion, uh, which is very important. Sometimes leaders themselves or the people they like to work with are people that have a very easy quote-unquote tongue right and are very open in conversation and would start speaking right away and feel confident and i think it doesn't mean that they're the smartest it doesn't mean it's the right solution it's just the one that caught the mic first i think being able to get everyone in the room to a comfortable position where they can share and think together is uh really important and i think with those two is enough empathy and listening and the ability to get inclusion through the room if i had to provide kind of uh, two pieces of training to my leadership team that would be keep investing in those i think the third one is being honest i'm kind of i don't get maybe all social cues and i prefer honesty over everything so i prefer people to just say it very direct uh, to each other what they think where they're going how are we gonna win this and be able to have honest conversations uh, at all times it's really helpful as a third one that makes a lot of sense. I uh, 
I, I really, it really hit home with me hearing the, what you said about how kind of the loudest person isn't always the right person or the person that's most willing to talk doesn't necessarily have the best idea. And that's why it's important to get everyone's input. Uh, because I personally am the person that is willing to talk and, <laughs> and I'm always open to share my ideas and I'm often wrong. Like, a lot of the time it comes up because I, I write music with my friends and we're working together on something. And I just kind of come up and just say aloud the first thing that comes to mind. And it's really important to kind of pry into some of my other like quieter colleagues like that are just sitting there thinking it over and coming up with a much, much better idea than what I said uh, to, <laughs> in order to get to the best possible final product so yeah adam i think it, it really relies to it goes back to how people learn so some of us are online and need talking in order to figure ourselves out i don't know what i want to say but i'll start talking and then figure it out while i talk so it's learned by talking so you need to make room for those people you also have people that are writers right they need to go home think about it and write and come up with a great solution, right? Does it matter that it happens today or tomorrow? Well, just because we scheduled the meeting for the day so that decision can't wait for tomorrow for you to think about it a bit longer and come back with something that you wrote? Usually that's not the case. Some of us are readers, right? How do we learn? Some of us just read it way faster than listening in a 40-minute call, right? So some of us wants to read it, right? There would be people that instead of listening to the podcast would just read the summary or read someone that wrote it and it would be 10x faster to them and they would learn or understand more right some are listeners so you want to be able to capture all those learnings people that are more online and are going to do it kind of on the spot all the offline thinkers and get really a place where the inclusion comes into place and allows them to think longer allows them to come with their ideas later even if it was a in a text message, right? Sometimes the best ideas come back later. Hey, you think about whatever X and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Let's cancel the meeting that we have and go with that, <laughs> right? So, so you have to allow that to happen. And I think it sometimes takes time. And we got used to, especially pre-COVID, right? In a world where leaders were tested on those skills, right? What did you test leaders for? Hey, did you speak first? Did you take ownership? Did you move the ship in the right direction, right? So a lot of that uh, outgoing was required. But actually, when you look at innovation processes, they're not necessarily happening all the same. So being able to be modest and say, understand that it's not the only way to communicate is really important. Yeah, I think that one thing that you, you touched on really stood out to me, and it's that oftentimes we kind of set a deadline for a decision to be made by the end of a meeting because that's what the meeting's for. But yeah, it, you're totally right. It doesn't matter whether or not that decision's made right now or later tonight. If, if the decision that's made later tonight is a better path to go on. So. Yeah. I think there is something about the level of creativity of the, are we actually solving the solution, the problem? Do we have the right setup and relationship to make it work? That's kind of one end of the spectrum. And the other end is, are we efficient and effective? We set out it's going to be an hour. Did we meet our goals at the end of the hour, right? I think what happened, at least to our team in, during COVID, that efficiency and effectiveness became great. 
it's those creative moments that I'm afraid of, right? It's those uh, water fountain moments that people from different teams were talking and something snapped, right? Those are the ones that we care about. Those are the reasons startups even exist, right? It's the it's that chaos that creates innovation that is a bit missing uh, in large organizations or sometimes missing in large organizations. And you want to keep that and not only worry about effectiveness and efficiency or other uh, metrics that are generally measured. Yeah, so I guess before we wrap up, I just want to make sure we, we hit on everything we want to hit on. Is there anything you want to get out there uh, you want to plug or what have you for, for augury or otherwise? Yeah, I think that when I was thinking about uh, listeners of this podcast, I think that we sometimes, us CTOs or tech people in general, we sometimes fall in love with technology, speaking to other technologies and getting humans out of the loop. And I wanted to remind all of us that all of these transformations are for people, by people, to people. Uh, and we... And including them in it is really important. And sometimes it's kind of, hey, how do we make sure that people are actually going to use it? Is is can't be overstated in this environment? So uh, keep them in mind. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.